Hey everyone, welcome to Guards of Eden. Today's guest is Bangs Kerry Campbell. I was fortunate enough to meet Bangs just under two years ago when I rode in her class with Boomcycle. I mentioned it in the episode, but I was immediately drawn to just how fantastic a leader Bangs was, not just the fact that she was also a great instructor and a badass human being overall. Over the just under the past two years, I've got to learn more about Bangs' journey. This episode was really enlightening. I think one thing that was significant throughout is this idea of an internal self-belief and to trust the process. Bangs has had a multitude of mini journeys within the big journey of life. It's just amazing to see someone that is as compassionate and as authentic and as empathetic as Bangs win. And I put win in quotations because she's been fortunate enough to win in so many different ways. And I just love the human being that she is and everything that she stands for. You can find out more about Bangs in the show notes. If you do enjoy this episode, please subscribe, leave a rating and a review if you're on Apple. And yeah, just go show Bangs some love because she's just a phenomenal human being, as I said. And being able to share this conversation with her was just a true honor. So without further ado, three, two, one, let's go. Hey Bangs, how are you doing? I'm feeling awesome, thank you. How are you? I'm good. The first question is something that I ask all guests, and that's because I have a Guards of Eden soundtrack Spotify playlist, which is, Bangs, can you give me a song that reminds you of a happy memory or makes you feel good and just generally happy? Oh. There are many, but... The first one that comes to mind, I would say, is Got To Be Real by Cheryl Lynn. Okay. And I love dancing to that. If, if that comes on anywhere, I don't care if I'm in a department store, that's my dance floor. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's just a great tune that just makes me feel good inside. So, yeah, that, it's like go-to happy music for me, for sure. Oh, I love it. So that is going to live on the Spotify playlist which is in the show notes for anybody who's interested. Right. So Bangs, before there was Bangs, I'm going to have a go at pronouncing your name, which I know you intentionally have said it's impossible to pronounce. No one ever gets it right. I'm going to go immediately vulnerable and have a go at saying it. (laughs) Um, So before Bangs, there's Moiran. Am I pronouncing that right? All right, well, first of all, I'm going to give you points because it's not quite right, but if you're going with the Irish pronunciation, yes, right. you are, like, very close. So Irish people would pronounce it Moran, yeah. um, but you can't just hit people with the Gaelic straight away. Do you know what I mean? It's too <laughs> much for people. So um, it's, we kind of um, Englishified it a bit and uh, went with Mirren, um, but obviously, because of, uh, you know, Irish people uh, like to put a lot of unnecessary vowels in our names. Yeah. So it throws people off and people never really get it. But yeah, <laughs> it's Mirren. All right. So before Bags, there was Mirren. What were, what was a young Mirren like growing up? And am I right in saying you were growing up in Canada? Yeah, I was born here in Canada. And then we moved to England when I was five. Ah. Um so I, I do have memories of being here as a as a kid. Um, my my dad's from here, um, Canada originally, and 
so they just had a really large friendship group on my dad's side of the family was here and my parents were kind of and still are like cool hippies basically <laughs> uh, and so when they had kids they just you know they would just take us everywhere with them and I definitely remember that uh, as a as a young child um I remember definitely remember winters here in Canada uh, <laughs> the, especially back then the snow was I mean the, the snow is pretty bad in the winter here now but not like it was back then uh, and I remember my brother and I used to build tunnels through the snow in the garden oh, wow. like that's how much snow we would get I remember doing that I remember that kind of thing um, and then when we moved to England my upbringing there was where I grew up it was really quite Irish to be honest like I remember a lot of the um kids at my school there were just a lot of Irish mothers around um and uh, I went to a Catholic school Catholic primary school and so I mean I really grew up in the church to be honest you know like the church was a a, a big big part of my life when I was younger and my mum's mum my grandmother who um was very Irish and very Catholic uh she lived with us for a couple of years and um, she was she's the kind of Catholic who she knew every saint to pray to for like, oh, you lost something. Pray to this fella. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she was that kind of Catholic. Uh, so having her around just meant that we were at church a lot. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it, there was a lot of kind of thinking back now, just a lot of we were really steeped in Irish culture. You know, even though we were in England, a lot of our mothers especially were Irish and it just was like, I don't think you're really conscious of it at the time necessarily, but it definitely, especially during those formative years, had quite a effect on like the, the culture that I was being raised up in and the things that we used to do, you know. Um, but it was, you know, I grew up in a two-parent household with an older brother and, yeah, it was just, I really liked my childhood, my teens, you know. I just, I, I had... Uh, a good life and good connections with people yeah oh i love it and i've got an irish nana and i was also raised in a catholic primary school so a lot of church for me as well right when I was growing so you up. know yeah <laughs> yeah um and am i right in saying you were a, you were a dancer from a young age i know that it kind of i know you picked it a bit of salsa dancing up when you were back in london and that was kind of when we crossed mm. paths definitely not through salsa dancing i've yeah. almost got two left feet but <laughs> <laughs> but um am i right in saying you were a dancer growing up like as in it was a passion of yours from a young age oh yeah yeah, yeah. i started taking dance classes i want to say probably when i was about 10 okay uh I, my parents were just very cool parents who would whatever I was showing an interest in, they were like, well, try it and see. Mm. So I went through many different phases with that. I was strongly into horse riding for a second. Now looking back, I don't know how, my parents were both freelancers when I was yeah. growing up. Now, having been a freelancer, I'm like, I don't know how they raised two kids this way. And, <laughs> you know, let us do all of these things. So how they figured horse riding into this equation, I have no idea. Um, so I did horse riding for a bit. Then I got really into swimming. Um, and was uh, part of the local swimming club and did a lot of swimming competitions and things. And piano, really big into piano for a bit. 
definitely saw myself, uh, you know, in the future of being some kind of jazz pianist. Didn't pan out. Uh, and then I'm not even sure how or why I ended up going to a dance class, but I went to a place called Charisma Stage School, which was just like an after after school kind of uh, and Saturday mornings. I remember dance classes um and yeah i did ballet and jazz and tap and all of that at that phase and yeah i just really seemed to take to it and i was good at it and then as i got a bit older and going into my teens at that time i was living in leeds and i used to go to um the northern school of contemporary dance which is um pretty famous Um, they had a lot of um after school and youth programs so i was part of the youth dance company there and uh and did a lot of stuff there um, but yeah, it was a huge part of my life when I was younger and I loved it. I definitely wanted to be a choreographer was like my mm. first, one of my first kind of career goals was to get into choreography. The thing about you is that from knowing you over the past, I guess, like 18 months, I could see you still getting into jazz piano and still get into choreography. <laughs> I just don't put anything you past you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, funnily enough, probably about 10 years ago, uh, I'd expressed a bit of an interest in getting back into piano. So my parents bought me a keyboard for Christmas and I had a little crack at it and was like, yeah, no, if you don't use it, you lose it. You know, <laughs> so I had really like lost the skill at that point. But as with anything, if you work hard enough at it, right, you, you know, I could have got it back, I'm sure. But it's yeah. just how badly do you want to do it? How much time do you want to invest? And I was like, I'm never going to be Harry Connick Jr. You know, I've, I maybe need to let the dream die. <laughs> I just still, I just still can't put it past you. I could see it in like five <laughs> years. You're like, mm, let's have a little look and see how this goes. <laughs> um, I appreciate that level of faith in me. Thank yeah, you. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> so dance, obviously that it, it was a potential option for a career, like you said, with choreography, and you decided, uh, I guess it would have been 16, deciding with A-levels in university that you've either got this, I guess, I'm going to quote unconventional kind of path of education in terms of going into a more dance-orientated and dance-focused educational, I guess, path, but you decided to go with A-levels in university. What kind of led to that decision in your mind in terms of saying this is just I'm going to go this A-level university direction. And is it anything, do you ever consider the, the like what could have been at all? Oh, definitely. Really? Yeah. yeah I, but also, so, so when I was at Northern School of Contemporary Dance doing all these youth programs and, and doing, you know, after school classes a few times a week, uh, and I loved it. And obviously because I was there so much, I knew a lot of the teachers and, a few of them had said to me, if you audition to, to get into the school full time, you'll get in, you'll get in because, you know, you're at that level. But I just, I, I've, looking back, I think I was wise beyond my years at 16. Uh, and I guess I just thought that that's a really big decision to make at 16, right? To kind of put all your bets on dance. Yeah. And, and I loved it. But I'm not sure if I was aware, consciously thinking this at the time, that career-wise, 
this is going to be a hard path for me. Yeah. Uh, no matter how good you are, right? Even the, the the best dancers ever all have you know a, ro- a rocky path to get to what they want to achieve. And so yeah, I just thought I don't need to stop dancing, um, but I should probably carry on with my education and get some A levels and maybe go to university and see where that leads me and I can continue dancing taking classes doing what I need to do but I just figured it would be good to have another option there under my belt rather than put all my eggs in that um, basket of of dance now do I wonder what would have happened if I'd have taken uh, another path? Absolutely. You know, I kind of, I, I have a lot of friends who did take that path who went to Northern and, and saw that through and who are incredible dancers with incredible talent and have had great careers, but my God, it's been hard as well, you know? Mm. Uh, so I've, I've looked at that and, and thought, man, on the one hand, I'm absolutely envious of all these amazing things that they get to do and, in my soul, I'm still a dancer, you know, I think. Uh, um, uh, and I, I, I have an enduring love and passion for the art form. Uh, I, I love watching dancers. I love, you know, like I said, I don't care if I'm in a department store, I'll have a good boogie to anything. Um, I love that form of expression in terms of movement and using your body that way. I think it's beautiful. And I love to move my body that way, too. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't say I have regrets about it. I, I'm more than happy with the way that my life seems to be panning out. But and also, you know, as you said, mentioned earlier, I got into salsa dancing a couple of years ago and that kind of, you know, I got to do some performances and stuff with that. So that was really nice to, to discover that at a bit of a later stage in my life and be able to explore that and still have that kind of fun and still be able to go out and perform and do those kind of things. So yeah, I think that's the thing with, with passions that you have, you'll always find a way to engage in them and, and find a way for them to be in your life and make you happy. If, if you want to, right. You'll, you'll make the room for it. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, so you do decide to go to university. I'm, I'm Ryan believing Mm -hmm. where, so this is one part of the story that I don't know and I'm coming in completely blind. Um, what did you decide to study and where did you go and how did you find your time at university? I went to the London College of Fashion, Ooh. which I think now is called the London Institute or something. I think it's changed names now. But anyway, yeah, at the time it was the London College of Fashion mm-hmm. and I was <laughs> I had a bit of a convoluted way of getting there because uh, in typical Bangs fashion, when I'm into something, I'm very, very focused on it. And during my A-levels, I I was like super into fashion and thought, yeah, well, you know, London College of Fashion has this course called Fashion Promotions that was very new at the time. And I thought that's where I want to go. And I remember, I'm not sure what the process is now, but when I was doing my A-levels, there was um, whatever it's called, UCAS, and you applied for six universities or something i applied for one i applied for the london college of fashion and i applied for this one course and i was like well that's it it's that or nothing i want to get in there and i did not they turned me down um and i think i did a kind of a last minute through clearing i got into the university of central lancashire or something and they had a similar kind of course fashion promotions or whatever and i was like oh fine i'll take it 
And I went and it was awful, 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 awful. Hated it. I lasted six weeks. And before I was like, no, I have to, I'm getting out. Yeah. So moved back home. And I think maybe did I come to Canada for a little while or something? Something in there. I'm not sure if that was before I went to um, the university or after. But at some point there, I came back to Canada for a little bit. Mm. Um, And then I think, yeah, I went back home and I just ended up working to save money. Yeah in a call center as all people in the north do um <laughs> as a, to, to make money back in the day and i i remember i i called the london college of fashion and basically begged i wow. i called the course director and basically begged her like um, because then they actually once they saw my a-level results they then offered me a place after the fact or something it was oh. very weird but at that point it was like I'd already gone to University of Central Lancashire and come back. And my life was just a bit of a shambles, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and I just didn't, I couldn't have moved to London at that point. So I had to defer the place, but I, I had to beg to get them to let me do that. Right. Um, and thankfully, they ended, I think, probably more out of like, if we just give this girl the place, will she just fuck off? <laughs> I think that was probably the logic at this point, because I just... I was relentless. I just wouldn't, I had my heart set on it and that is where I wanted to go. And so I I just called um, relentlessly until they gave me that place and let me defer it. And I stayed in Leeds and worked in this call center for a year and saved money. And then, yeah, the year after I went down to London and started my course down there and I loved it. It was transformative for me. See, at the time, you know, this is God, it's so weird when you get to a stage in your life where you can actually say 20 years ago and you were an adult, that was 20 years ago. Like age is so weird. So yeah, 20 years ago in Leeds and, you know, not to paint it with too broad a brush, but I'd say the North in general, we didn't have opportunities up there. There weren't media companies. It was If you wanted to do something with your life in, in any kind of creative or artistic field, really... London was the hub and you had to be there. And so I spent so much of my life and my teens just thinking, not that I necessarily disliked Leeds, but I just thought there's nothing here for me. Mm. Everything that I want to do is down in London. And especially since fashion was kind of the thing for me at the time, you just spend so much time thinking, I just want to get out and I just want to move and be where the action is. I want to be in the big city. So it was it was amazing for me to go down there right before I started I got glandular fever and was horribly horribly sick for about six weeks before I left and when I got there one of the kind of long-term effects of glandular fever is like extreme exhaustion Mm. and I remember when I first moved to London it was almost like I had narcolepsy like any kind of the smallest amount of effort to do anything I was just exhausted like I know definitely for my first month or so I fell asleep in a lot of classes I fell asleep on every form of public transport I just uh, just because I'd been so sick you know for so long um so that was the the that's what I remember about the early part of me getting there but I just remember it being a time you know I was 19 years old and was like wow like I got to London and would like Regent Street in particular, I'd stand at the bottom of Regent Street and just be like, wow, I can't believe I live here. You know, it was such a thrill for me. I'd never, I think I'd been to London maybe once in my life before I moved there. Mm. And so it was really transformative for me. I really felt like 
this is it. I've arrived, you know. And, you know, my, my course I was doing, I'll be honest and say it was a little bit Mickey Mouse, to be honest. Ah, they, okay, yeah, it yeah. wasn't particularly well established as a course at that point. But I really enjoyed the work that I was, was doing on it. I've met great people who I'm still friends with now who are very close friends of mine. And, and I think that's probably the case for, for a lot of people when they go to university, right? You kind of make mm. these connections that end up being lifelong. And I met some great people and I fell in love with that city and obviously stayed for a very long time. So, yeah, it was it was a really great part of my life. Oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah, because that was like one part I just didn't know. So hearing that now, that was just, yeah, amazing. I love it. One thing I want to cover as well is that, so Bangs and Bun, the blog. It, yeah. You told a part of your, you told a part of the story of finding the blog at your book launch pie, which we will cover the book, a story about your Nana helping you with that. And I was wondering if you yeah. can not only tell the story, because it's a beautiful story and I think everybody that is listening to this should hear it you've spoken about having a passion for movement and dance and you know anybody that knows you has got you've got this lovely uplifting spirit and i guess to have this like secondary direction of someone that's thoughtful insightful you're a fantastic writer did you always have a passion for writing and tell the story of bangs and bun and it's i guess it's creation because it's a story that I really loved when you told it. Writing's always been a huge part of my life. When I was young, kind of primary school age, I was a prolific writer. I had a crazy imagination and I would just absolutely fill notebooks with all these fiction stories and absolutely loved it. And when I was in school, English was by far my best subject Mm -hmm. and I absolutely loved to write and I had really great teachers who encouraged and nourished that in me Mm. Uh, so I was very lucky in that sense the course that I did at London College of Fashion had kind of three strands to it so it was journalism PR and broadcasting and I kind of majored if you like in the journalism part of it and that was really where I saw myself heading at that point Mm. was into uh, journalism magazine journalism in particular I was a real magazine junkie. I just used to buy everything and would stockpile them in my house and uh, had a real, real passion for that. So it had always been a part of my life. But again, at the time, there weren't many outlets to be able to do that. If you couldn't actually get in with a physical publication, which was notoriously difficult, mm. uh, and I got turned down. I mean, I remember applying after university, applying for jobs at every, literally writing to every single magazine, going right into magazines I had no interest in, like <laughs> bridal magazines and shit, you know, like that I had no interest in whatsoever. And I got, and this is like kind of pre-email. So getting rejection letters in the post, mm. which is a special kind of burn, you know, <laughs> um, I got rejection letters from every single one. You know, it was just, it was notoriously difficult to get into publishing at that time, Mm. uh, magazine publishing in particular. So finding an outlet to do that was just, it was really frustrating. And I'd, after university, I'd gone to New York and done some internships at a couple of magazines there. And that ended up kind of being a bit fruitless, trying to figure out visa situations and whatever to get hired by anybody. It just ended up being more hassle than it was worth. Then I moved to Tokyo and taught English for a bit. And then when I went back to England, went back to England before. Oh, no, actually, I went to came back to Canada then at that point. Right. And I was working as a travel agent at the time. 
which first of all shout out to travel agents it's a very hard job um <laughs> it was not exactly living the dream for me mm. uh it, it just and again i have much respect for people who work in the travel industry uh i was certifiably terrible <laughs> at that job i legit sent people to the wrong places also <laughs> like i just was the worst so I really had no business being in that industry, but it was re- it was kind of the only place I could get hired at the time, right? So, I, and I needed I just to have to keep a roof over my head. Fine, whatever, I'll take it. Yeah. So I was working as a travel agent. That wasn't going well, and that that was in Toronto. And then I came back to Halifax to kind of just take a bit of a breather from it, and was managing this uh, jewelry and accessory store at the time. And um, it was just me in the shop. And I'd take my laptop in and just kind of kill time. I would just spend time kind of browsing around online. And this is like 2007. Okay. And I came across a, a blog one day. And this is the first time I'd ever seen anything like it. Mm. And at the time, I can't remember now for the life of me which blog it actually was. But at the time, everybody would have what they called a blog role right? Mm -hmm. Like at the side, they'd list other blogs that they liked and they read. And so I found this one blog and then saw they had a blog roll and clicked through all these others and just went down this rabbit hole and was like, wait a minute, what? This, what? This whole thing exists. I had no idea. Right. And it was like, it was all in 2007, all very kind of rinky dink. Uh, Everybody was just kind of getting started in it and figuring it out. And I thought, man, this could be the way for me to kind of write again and do writing that I love and enjoy doing. Um, Because again, when I was here in Canada, I was applying to all sorts of publications and just getting nowhere. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to start a blog. Now, obviously I'm not a particularly technical person. I have no idea how one goes about starting a blog. So I did much research and settled on the name bangs in a bun um, (laughs) after much brainstorming um which i looking back now it's funny because it makes no sense whatsoever like bangs and a bun is a hairstyle my blog had nothing to do with hair just i just like alliteration and i liked the way it sounded so i was like i'm gonna go with bangs and a bun um and so then yeah my grandmother comes into it because i was flat broke i was living here in halifax and i was absolutely flat broke and at the time i didn't even have a bank card that could be used online um well and also at that time online stuff you know you couldn't really shop too much online etc at the time but i didn't have you needed an actual credit card i didn't have one of those right so the backstory of my grandmother being and so i lived in halifax now halifax in nova scotia terms is a large city Hmm. it has a population of just under half a million half half, yeah five hundred thousand people right yeah just under five hundred thousand people um so coming from london city of nine and a half million people i think it is at the moment bit of an adjustment yeah so that's considered a big city here in nova scotia right it's kind of like the central hub now my grandmother grew up and lived in a tiny little place called brookfield Mm -hmm. which is about an hour an hour and some change outside of halifax she grew up on a farm and uh, brookfield is very rural Mm -hmm. Uh, she essentially practically lived and died on the same street her whole life, right? She, wow. um, when she got married at 18, 
she moved a few miles down the road to work on this farm with her then husband and she was homesick like just being a few (laughs) miles down the road right um suffice to say we lived very different lives right right? she was married with two children by the time she was 20 21 she had two kids already um we had very different lives and you know i I'd obviously moved away when I was five and I'd seen her. We were obviously always in contact via phone and we'd write letters and things, but I'd only really seen her after that a handful of times in my life. Right. So it was kind of, we were in this weird phase of trying to reestablish a connection and relationship. And there was just this gulf between us of, I think I just didn't make much sense to her. Right. <laughs> Cause I was at that time, late twenties and wasn't married and had no prospects in that particular arena. Uh, and that in itself uh, is kind of uncommon here, right? Um, especially at that time. And especially to her, that was the life that she knew, right? And she, it, hey, it worked out fine for her. Yeah. Um, not that she ever said that to me outwardly, but I could feel it that what she wanted for me was to settle down with a nice fella, you know, <laughs> is really what she wanted. And I was not doing that. And I was showing no interest in doing it either, you know. So I think there was definitely a gulf between us where it was hard for us to connect. But we were both really trying, you know. (laughs) She was also a really, really quiet woman. You know, she just kind of kept to herself. And yeah, she was not, we're complete polar opposites in that sense. She's not kind of out there and boisterous. So anyway, at this time, I decided to start this blog. I thought, you know, in order for me to buy a domain name, I I obviously need to do that online and I don't have a bank card that can do it. So I called my grandmother up and, you know, gosh, at the time she was, uh, I guess, late 70s-ish. Sure. And I don't think she even knew what the internet was, to be honest, you know, and I'm kind of explaining to her like, Hey, I really, there's these things called blogs where I can write on it. And I really want to be able to write kind of opinion pieces and articles and things. And I think people are really going to be interested in it. And it's going to be a great way for me to kind of launch this writing career that I really want to do and explained all of this to her. And I don't think she knew or understood a single thing I was talking about. And basically I said, you know, can I borrow your credit card to pay for the domain name, which, you know, it was 20 bucks or whatever it was, you know? And now obviously to a 70 plus year old woman where this particular kind of internet activity was a complete (laughs) anomaly to her, for her to have agreed to that (laughs) is when I look back on it now, just mind boggling because I'm sure the entire way through this conversation she was just thinking I have no idea what you're talking about please cut to the chase like what do you want um so anyway she agreed to let me borrow her credit card and I bought the domain name bangs and a bum Mm -hmm. and I started blogging and you know for the first two years nobody read it apart from my mom and dad probably (laughs) uh and then gradually it kind of built up and took off but she had this kind of blind faith in me that oh you need this thing to kind of get going and for her to not understood that what I was actually doing she really had no understanding of what I was actually doing but she invested in it and she believed in me enough to to know oh you'll make something of it and looking back now I think that's really 
just the purest form of love to have just kind of been like, yeah, I've got no idea what you're talking about, but here, yeah, take my credit card details and go and do what you need to do. Yeah. Uh, and to have trusted me with that and to have believed in me enough to know that it all worked out. And then it kind of came full circle. She, she passed on a, a couple of years ago and my parents came over here to Canada to, to be at her bedside in the, in the couple of weeks before she passed. And my mother had uh, at that point, you know, my blog had become fairly successful and I ended up writing for Elle magazine. Yeah. And my mother had, as uh, you know, Irish mothers tend to do, <laughs> she would buy the, buy the magazine and kind of scrapbook it, you know, yeah. she'd cut out my articles and keep a little <laughs> scrapbook of it all. And she'd taken that over and she told me that during that time when my grandmother was in hospital she would sit and read the articles to her and show her and it's like that's really lovely to to me a real a real comfort to know that she knew on some level I did something with that you yeah. know I, I I kind of I made it work she she took a punt on me and I made it work and so you know in um the days leading up to her passing on it was a bit of a full circle moment for her to see, oh, she made it into a magazine and she lived the dream that she was talking about back in the day, you know, so that it did all end up working out, but it, it, it wouldn't have been anything without her blind faith in me in that moment. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's, it's just one of the sweetest stories ever, first of all. I love Aww. it. Um, I guess it's like she just looked at the human being you were and was like, that was where the faith was like placed it was like mm. yeah I've got no idea what you're talking about but <laughs> I look at you and I'm like if you believe in it it's just that blind faith in the human being not even the concept or anything else it's yeah and um yeah I'm just going to skip wildly ahead in terms of we can always cover stuff chronologically but I guess yes. it's this idea of because I met you through boom cycle and cycling and then obviously maybe like six months or yeah about six to eight months it was that you were your book was being released which I love mm. and I have a copy here but it's this idea of now that you've taken that love for writing and it's almost like when that book gets released is it something like it it's almost like it deepens the connection with your grandma because she almost set it help you set it in motion the love for writing and it's you know, it's not bangs and bun, the blog, but it's this idea of now you're a published author. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. It makes me, it makes me sad that my grandma didn't make it to see that moment, you know, yeah. but, but it, it absolutely is that exactly what you said. It, it helps to kind of strengthen that connection for me. Cause I think without that initial investment, not just of her credit card, mm. but of her faith, her investment yeah. of faith in me, uh, which I am very lucky to have been surrounded by in terms of family. You know, my parents are incredible and have yeah. been throughout my life in terms of supporting and encouraging anything I've wanted to do, tracking it all the way back to when they got me horse riding lessons. You know, <laughs> they just have indulged um, my passions since I was born. Um, and I've been incredibly lucky to, to have that as a support system throughout my life. And so with that, you know, they've really carried me on the, on a wave of their unbridled enthusiasm for <laughs> me and anything I want to achieve. And, uh, you know, my, my grandmother was obviously a part of that as well. And so, yeah, it definitely does feel now like 
when I look at that book, I do think genuinely it would not have happened without her, that Mm. all of those little things led up to that. But without the blog, I never would have been writing for Elle magazine. Without Elle magazine, I never would have gotten to the book, you know? So yeah, uh, she definitely, I I don't think she would have ever credited herself because she was a very, very humble woman. But uh, without her, I, I wouldn't have achieved those things for sure. Yeah, just it came to me as you were t- saying the story. It's there's just something beautiful, and even a start of a new journey when the person's you know not here in the physical form, that mm. the spiritual connection. It's like it's still intertwined into the fabric of your life even now. Um, oh, absolutely, yeah. And this is something I've maybe, I guess, had like a heightened level of like sensitivity to it. This idea of I did some blog writing when I was at university and it was just a way of kind of like yourself, I had a passion for writing and it was a way of kind of keeping my mind busy and set on something that was, that I found found more valuable than just being a typical uni student doing not very much. So, but I think the idea of the mind shift of writing, you know, I've been fortunate to write for other blogs. How did you find the transition of getting rid? I'd imagine finding your own voice with bangs and barn and, knowing that you were writing for your own piece, writing pieces for your own blog. How did you find the transition of writing for other platforms? Difficult. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If I'm honest, I I really struggled with it because I never felt like the industry was open to me. Mm. Um, Just right from the very beginning, it had been a struggle for me. You know, like I'm not it's not an exaggeration when I say I wrote to every publication and had a rejection from every publication. uh, So to to have that and to stare that stare down the barrel of that and be like, no, I still think I'm a good writer. I'm just going to continue doing this thing. And fine, if none of you want me, fine, I'll start my own thing and do my own thing. You know, I think it was I started out kind of in feeling a bit defiant really and just Mm. being like cool I'll just create my own thing if none of you want me and I'd I'd had experiences once I once bangs in a bun was up and running even Mm. um to this day I'm absolutely trash at trying to pitch stories to people so I don't do it anymore because I'm just (laughs) trash at doing it um and I'm tired of the rejection of it and so hence why I really love doing bangs in a bun I really loved it because I could write the way I wanted to write about the things that I wanted to write about. And I had an audience that appreciated it. Um, It just became a lot to try and constantly convince other publications that I had something worthwhile and not to discredit those publications. Obviously, you know, they're all still in business and doing well and thriving. And I don't think that a piece from me was going to um you know elevate them further it's not that Mm. it's just that i think there was especially once blogging took off right there was this battle then almost between journalists and bloggers a lot Mm. of resentment there from the journalist side how dare they think that they are professionals how dare they think that they can do you know and you felt it a lot um and I, yeah, anytime I would try and pitch something, I just kind of felt this arrogance from the other side of like, how dare you mm. think that because you have a blog, you can write for us, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of snobbery, I yeah. feel, in, yeah. in that industry, which I, I, you know, I'm just going to say it. I feel it's still there, um, which I think is why 
blogging and uh, you know the various forms that it's now taken off into podcasting etc is so valuable because the industry and the, and the snobbery of the industry and the elite that work within that industry have tried to block off other people from getting in for so long yeah. and so you know once we were given the opportunity and the platform to share our stories to share our voices in these ways uh, i understand why traditional media may have found that to be a threat um, but I'm also very grateful for the stories that have been able to be told as a result of that. Uh, so I found it when I, I, I got the occasional article. I mean, I wrote one article for the New York Times once approached me mm-hmm. and, and I wrote an article for them. And I wrote, I think, one piece for The Guardian at one point. Um, but yeah, I really struggled when I wrote both of them because I just like writing the way that I write. You know, I'm not. I'm not particularly great at um, adapting my writing for certain audiences, et cetera. I'm not uh, talented in that way as other writers are. Um, and so I, I did find that really difficult. When Elle approached me, I felt extremely lucky because their whole approach to me was like, listen, we, we love the way you write. We love your authenticity. We love your voice. Bring that to Elle. And Quite honestly, I'm, I'm trying to think, but, uh, you know, any article that I submitted to them, I don't think they ever changed a word of it. Um, wow. And they they really did let me talk about what I wanted to talk about, stay true to my principles, stay true to my voice and my ethics within it as well. You know, I was the fitness columnist there and I made it clear if you're looking for someone to talk about weight loss and how to get abs, you got the wrong chick. I'm yeah. not going to do it. I was very honest about that. And they said, yeah, no, we know. And that's why we hired you. We don't want you to do that. Um, and so I have nothing but respect to um, the, the editors there at L who hired me and who nurtured that and and saw something in me. I'm so, I'm so, so grateful that they did. Um, and I think, you know, I was there for just over a year doing my column. And, you know, it, it was a really great learning process for me. You know, they would make suggestions and give me input, but they would never they never changed and manipulated anything that I wrote ever, which it was, you know, um, I'm, I'm guessing quite a unique experience, to be honest, when you're at a, a publication like that. So, yeah, I kind of lucked out by by um, ending up writing for them for sure. Yeah. Someone as authentic as you are. Yeah, I couldn't imagine. Yeah, I just couldn't imagine you not writing in the the way that you wanted to write or expressing yourself in the way you want to express yourself as we get to 2014 you find yourself pursuing spin instructing and on a podium how did you find the early days of becoming a spin instructor and yeah just how was your early experience of it ah it was a really pivotal moment in my life i'd just gone through a huge breakup my life was in an absolute shambles. I'd moved across the city. So I'd been living in East London for a few years. I moved across the city to Notting Hill. I was living on my own um, with my dog at the time, Stringer, Mm -hmm. and was really just trying to pick up the pieces of my life and make something, right? Mm -hmm. I was, everything was all up in the air and I just didn't know what I was doing and had to figure my life out quick, sharp, and in a hurry, you know? (laughs) Um, And so I was very lucky that um, I'd met Robin Hillary, who owned Boom Cycle. Mm -hmm. A few years before that, I think I'd taken a class when they'd first opened the Shoreditch studio. 
and I just had kept in touch with them. I just remember really liking them as people, you know, mm. they were the owners, but they were working behind the front desk when I went there, you know, <laughs> they were just so hands-on with the business and I just really liked them. And I'd kept in touch with them kind of throughout the years. And then actually initially ended up how I came to work at boom cycle was I was writing their newsletters for a while. That's how oh. I started. And then um, because I was literally, I was flat broken, just trying to figure my life out. I ended up doing just as they'd opened Holborn studio. Yeah. I worked behind the front desk there for a little while, while I was writing the newsletters. And so I would listen to the classes that were happening and I would think, Oh, I think I could probably do that, you know? Um, and it just kind of sparked a bit of an idea. And I mentioned it to Hillary one day and she was like, Oh my God. Yes. I was hoping you would say that. <laughs> so, um, you know, she, tr at that time, before I started, Boom Cycle didn't really have a, a format in terms of how the classes worked. Mm. Um, each instructor just kind of had their own style at the time. So you didn't really know what you were getting when you came to Boom. Mm. And so just before I started as an instructor, there was a, a consultant who came over from the States and worked with Hillary and they kind of made this um, format for the class. And I was the first person to be trained up in that format. So I remember the early day. I also did not have much time to learn it. So I right. think like I had from the time I said I was going to learn it, it was like three weeks before I was on the schedule, you know, so Hillary <laughs> was kind of like figure it out. Um, so it was all a bit terrifying. And I think I probably spent a good my first couple of months. I was just a deer in the headlights, I think, mm. just trying to figure it out. It's funny because I say this a lot now. Now I obviously kind of do a lot of consulting and stuff for, for spin studios and train instructors. And Looking back on the, the early part of my, my career as an instructor, I think I was so caught up in my own ego and was also really just trying to kind of protect my heart and rebuild myself at that time because I was going through a, quite a difficult time personally. I was really just very caught up in my own ego and just mm. wanted to get as many people into my class as possible. And just I wanted to be really successful, but just I, there were a lot of stumbling blocks. You know, I just... I had to get it wrong a lot before I got it right. And I, I think the turning point came for me when I just let go of my ego. And finally, I mean, it's a bit embarrassing to say it now, but it probably took me a year to kind of have the realization that, oh, this it's about them, not me. Right. You know, it's like, yeah. it's kind of, I cringe a bit when I say it now that it took me a year to realize that, but once I kind of realized, oh, read the room yes. and look what's happening. And it's about them and their experience and, and drop the ego. You are in service to these people. That's what you're here for. Mm -hmm. You are in service to these people. And once I approached it like that, the shift was almost instantaneous in terms of what I felt I could bring to the podium and what I was getting back in, in return. And then all of a sudden my classes filled up like crazy and, and became really popular, but it took me a while to get there. My God, you know, I, and I was there really when we, right from the start, when we opened Holborn. So as anybody who's worked in the fitness industry and has been there for a studio opening knows it's a hustle, man. You know, when you first start out, it is a hustle. I, have you do not know awkward until you have taught a spin class to one person in a room that has 40 bikes 
it's awkward you know a lot of those early classes I was teaching to you know five people sometimes you know I'd be lucky if I was getting that yeah, yeah. um so it's humbling it's humbling you know and it's uh but looking back those are the times uh where it's all about attitude and I just thought okay this is where I learn this is my classroom right now and you know just go about it like there might be five people in here act like it's full you know give those five people the best experience they can possibly have and I think for a lot of instructors it can be quite a blow you know obviously it plays with your ego to like oh man you know I feel like I should have so many more people in here cool maybe you should but these are the people who are here you know so drop the ego focus your attention on them it's about them not you and like I say that was transformative for me yeah but the the early times were tough (laughs) while I was figuring out what that was going to look like for me but it was also so so important in that period in terms of my personal growth and Mm. and finding something where I was like I kind of felt with spin instructing oh this is what I was meant to do you know, I just, I had a moment there very early on with it, actually, of like, okay, I'm, I think I'm decent at this, but I think I could be really good. And I'm just going to work at getting really good because I think I've got something here. You know, I felt it. I felt it on like a soul level yeah. that I'm not sure if I can even really describe it properly or how how I came to feel that or why. But I think it was kind of a cacophony of everything that was happening in my life at the time and, and, and in my personal life as well of just kind of trying to hold it together and hey you've got to make this work you know um and all of it just kind of it was really divine timing I think everything fell together at exactly the right time and I found this thing that I think I'm really talented at and that I can hopefully really affect other people um and help them fall in love with movement the way I fell in love with it you know so and hopefully I ended up doing that (laughs) yeah no I um it's so interesting to hear you say about finding a real passion with spin instructing because so I yeah let me just be fully vulnerable I was having some real anxiety issues with I spit you know I've spun with like one place for a long time and what happened was, was I started getting, it had like data and numbers. So, and I just wasn't feeling good. So, you know, performance would drop and mm-hmm. I became really self-conscious. I became really anxious. I remember one class having to like run into a shower after the class and just like breathe, getting myself composed again. It was really strange. Mm-hmm. So I was like, let me go somewhere different and looked at Boom Cycle, looked at the instructor's and I think the cool thing about Boom was that they let you look at, it was like, you clicked on your profile with Bangs and it was like, check out Bangs' Spotify playlist. And I was like, oh, okay, cool, let me look. And we had like very identical or at the very least, very similar music taste. And I was like, perfect, let's go. So I did your class. And then the thing that really struck me is that although you say I found something with spin instructing specifically, I just noticed you had a leadership and a grasp of a room that felt tra- it it felt transcendental to spin it was like you wasn't just a great spin instructor you were a great leader of people that happened to be around bikes like was like <laughs> you know what i mean it, it 
it was almost a byproduct of the experience. I was like, you had a way of grabbing attention from the room. You made me feel very comfortable as well as engaged. And it was a nice balance of feeling challenged and pushed whilst also feeling, you know, the freedom to not be perfect and the freedom to like not be the fittest person in the room. So it's, interesting Mm. for you to say I have a real talent in spin instructing because I looked at you as you were just a fantastic leader that happened to be a spin instructor oh wow well firstly that's very kind thank you (laughs) no worries (laughs) um that's really interesting that you say that yeah I hmm, okay so I'm not maybe maybe that's true but I'm not I'm not sure if I would have been able to channel it um Mm. without spin i think that perhaps i think you're you're right in the sense that when i look back on my life i probably always have kind of naturally fallen into leadership type roles Mm. um almost despite myself i think uh (laughs) but i think spin helped me to channel that in a in a way that i haven't been able to access before right there's just something about that format for me and that helped me to be able to communicate my approach to fitness in a way that I don't think another way would have allowed me to. Mm. So uh, really interesting what you were saying there, because my my whole thing is that I want people to feel comfortable. Uh, When I train people now, probably the phrase that I say the most often is think of the newest person in the room. Mm. And that's so important to me. What I want, um, especially for people who are not necessarily or wouldn't class themselves as fitness people, yeah. right? Um, I'm not a gym person. I'm not into fitness, blah, blah, blah. Cool. You're my person. You're my person who I'm trying to channel, you yeah. know, who I really want to talk to, who I really want to, um, I really want to be able to touch you like on a soul level, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I always think about the newest person in the room and I want to make people comfortable um, because I've been to studios myself where it's so, you walk in and you're like, oh, my God, like everybody looks a certain way. And like, did did everybody get notes before they got here or something? <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. where you feel like everybody knows what they're doing and you don't like yeah. there's no worse feeling. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I try to chat to every new rider when they'd come in and be like listen here's what's going to happen like you know don't feel any way if you can't keep up that's totally cool i just want you to vibe out to the music have yourself a good time i'm going to make sure throughout the class i give that person eye contact that i check in with them that i make sure they're okay i'm going to check in with them after the class make sure they enjoyed it etc you're not going to reach every single person every time but i would say i've had a pretty successful recidivism rate in terms of people coming back you know um and I, I think it is that it's it's comfortability. Listen, we are really at our most vulnerable when we are being physical in that way, mm. right? We we walk into those rooms and there's society the weight of society's expectations on us in terms of how our bodies should look, how we should behave, you know, that we are carrying so much when we come into those rooms. Mm. Um especially if you do not class yourself as a fitness type person, you know, I will say also, I would always champion the big girls when they would come, Mm. Um, you know, 
by no means am I saying here that I have weight issues or whatever. I'm not going to put myself in that category, but I'm a UK size 12, which as a fitness instructor, and at the time at Boom, I was the oldest instructor there, mm. um, or, or Hillary and I are the same age, I think. Yeah. But, you know, the fitness industry is full of like 20 something year old skinny blonde girls a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a obviously a, a certain look that goes along with it. I am not that look, you know, yeah. um, and I have jiggly love handles and, you know, I've got cellulite and it is what it is. So I made a point of riding in just my sports bra because I know I don't have the typical quote unquote fitness body. And again, I fully understand to somebody who might look at pictures of me and think, oh, what are you talking about? Your right. body's fine. And I know that, but in, in a very specific fitness sense in terms of the industry i do not have the typical body and so i made a point of riding in just my sports bra because i want all the women who are bigger than me to know hey check out this flabby bit check out these love handles like i'm just letting it all hang out and it's going to jiggle and it is what it is <laughs> i want you to feel comfortable to do the same yeah. because all of our bodies are beautiful we are horrendously lucky to be able to be here and move in this way I don't give a fuck what you look like. I care that you're here and I want you to be able to express yourself in whatever way you want to take that t-shirt off. If it feels good, you know, yeah. I want everybody to feel that comfort level. And that was massively important to me. And I'd say probably some of the biggest feedback that I got from a lot of women was like, Oh my God, I rode in just my sports bra for the first time ever. I've never felt comfortable to do that. You know, those kind of comments meant the world to me because not for nothing, it's freaking hot in those rooms, yeah, yeah. you know, like my God, like the, the number of women who are just torturing themselves because they don't want to be seen in just a sports bra. I'm like, ladies, please, we've got to let this go, you know? Yeah. So yeah, comfortability is huge for me. And I think I just, you know, fitness has been so powerful and so transformative for me in my life and has affected my attitude to every other area of my life. I think I'm kind of, I can be a bit evangelical preacher about it. You know, I just, I want everybody to have that feeling, yeah, you know? Yeah. So I think because I am so passionate about it in that way, I think that's probably what you're referring to. That's probably yeah. what comes across is just, I just want everyone to have that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So when I, so when I thought of you as the leader, because naturally I was very reflective about Oh, what, what, you know, what do I remember about my first class? And that was kind of the, the, what resonated the idea of with great power comes great responsibility comes to mind with you because of that, because you were someone that you gave as much as you did. It was all encompassing. It wasn't just the physical aspect of the job. I could see it was a true emotional, mental, spiritual, physical, all encompassing I guess almost like temporary sacrifice for that 45 minutes it was absolutely mm. everything is in this class of me bangs so I wanted to ask you how did you hold a space for bangs the human being amongst a work that could be as demanding as it was in a variety of different ways that's a great question oh. and it's one that I I struggled with, uh, to be honest with you, because I did and still do put 
everything you just said, it's physical, emotional, spiritual. I put it all in because it's so important to me. And being able to lift people up in this way is so important to me uh, that it really can be difficult to separate that from just being me human because mm. i those two i don't know how to operate on another level do you yeah, know what i mean like yeah. i kind of everything i do in my life i don't see the points nor do i want to half-ass anything in my life right mm. so obviously as you know I'm, I'm an introvert as well and so it's that element of it was difficult doing the ride no problem whatsoever but i would often find it quite difficult to engage with people afterwards mainly because i was exhausted <laughs> i just yeah. would i'd put so much into it and it hurt me sometimes on a on a heart level because i would see people would want to talk to me after a ride and things and i would do that and i would i would try and engage as much as i could but I, oftentimes it was all i could do to just i just want to lie down in a dark room you know yeah, like yeah. it was such a kind of overwhelming experience and i would pour so much love into it and i appreciate every time so much getting all of that love back from people you know i think the, the people who came to my classes i just at boom especially will i will forever hold them in my heart just yeah. the most incredible group of humans um and so so much gratitude for everything they gave back to me which honestly made doing it that much more enjoyable because I just felt like I was in a room full of people who were investing as much as me, you know, and it was really beautiful to be able to share that with people, but it, Oh my God, it was exhausting, you know, <laughs> to, to, to finish a class, I'd be like, I, okay, I go nap now, you know, <laughs> I just was exhausted by the end of it. But how do I, yes, find time for bangs, the human, you know, I'm an introvert and especially at the time living in London, I lived in a little studio um, flat on my own in, in, in Notting Hill. And, you know, time with, with Biggie, my dog especially, was so healing for me and so necessary. So, um, yeah, walking the dog, being in nature is huge for me. Making time to journal and meditate every day. You know, it's funny because I say to instructors now when I train them, if you don't have some good spiritual practices in place, you got to get them, you know, yeah, um, yeah. because it's a it's a job where you give so much. You've got to be able to to refill yourself somehow. So, yeah, it's just kind of nothing major, but small daily practices that I needed to do for myself. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I've got a surprise for you now, which is <gasps> it's not a scary one, I promise. But it was okay, good. Um, it was the idea of the book. I want you to speak to the process because the surprise is, is that I found the post you've spoken about before that you had an Instagram post that kind of led to the transformative, like it was an integral part in you writing the book and going forward. And I loved, you spoke about the post and I was like, let me see if I can find it. And I did. And I love the oh. caption and I want to read it and get a reaction to because I'm assuming that it's not something that you ever think to reflect on. And I want to read it for you now and see what you okay. think of it now. So, okay. Bangs wrote a post on January 25th, 2018. And it said this in the caption. Since October 2016, 
I've been working on a book proposal. Draft after draft, thousands upon thousands of words to refine this idea. Uh, it's been a veritable shit ton of work. It's been frustrating, a huge learning curve, and ultimately really pushed me as a writer. And not to be brag, not to be too braggy, but my idea is really good. And every time I read my proposal, I'm like, shit, I'd buy this book. My agent is an absolute ledge. We met with multiple publishers at the end of last year, and today I got the word that the final one just turned me down. The reason. Not that my writing's not good enough, or the idea is not solid. They all cited the fact that I don't have enough followers on social media as the reason they couldn't take it further. To say this modern day of rejections is disheartening would be an understatement. I have lived and breathed this proposal for over a year, and I've been the embodiment and poster child for the ethos behind it for way, way longer. But you know, I don't have 100,000 Instagram followers, so why on earth would anyone give a shit what I write? What I would write, right? As much as I visualize signing a contract in assigning a contract with a big publishing house, it would seem smooth sailing just isn't in my DNA. So maybe you get pissed off for a second, maybe you cry for like two and a half minutes, then you're like, fuck it. I guess 2018 is the year that I learn about self-publishing. One way or another, you'll be reading my book this year. How does that make you feel, Bangs, to hear that back? that oh man yeah i remember writing that i remember i was uh sitting in uh, one of my favorite cafes in notting hill which sadly is now closed mm-hmm. um and yeah i remember that day and the build-up to it all it just it had been exhausting and that, it, all of that was true what i wrote um i had i was approached to write a book in 2016 and started working on the book proposal i had no idea what goes into a book proposal as I came to find out, a shit ton of work. That's yeah. what goes into a book proposal. It's a lot of words. Um, and it took a really long time, you know, to, it was over a year of like fine tuning it and getting it right and getting it to a point where we could take it to publishers, etc. It's just so much work. Mm. Um, and then for that to be the reaction when you, when you go to publishers, like how much, for that to constantly be the question, how many, social media followers have you got who gives a shit why is this a metric you know it's like i get it on the one hand but also this is why publishing houses have marketing teams you know to this this notion that you now as an author are solely responsible for marketing and selling your book is just horseshit frankly and i'm not into it it's really frustrating I don't think it's necessarily the case with with fiction, I should mm. say. It's more if you're in the nonfiction realm and you're seen as a quote-unquote expert in your field, they expect you to kind of show and prove on that. Oh, you're an expert? Okay, well, how many people follow you? I understand the logic, but at the same time, it makes me sad to think, you know, how many stories we're not hearing um, yeah. because this is now a metric in modern times. So, yeah, I remember just being really frustrated. I got that call from my agent and he said, I think, and who did a great job by the way, in terms of shopping it around to people, but, but even for us to get in the door for someone to read it, because you have to put in your proposal now, how many social media followers you have. Uh, so some, I didn't even get in the door to, yeah. to, to have someone read it. And I, I think we ended up having five or seven meetings and he sent it to probably over 20, I'm guessing yeah. publishers, you know, so we, 
we barely got in the door of any um, because and, and that the social media account came up in every single meeting, you know, and what are you going to do to get more followers? What are you going to do actually to promote my book? You know what I mean? It just was like so baffling to me to sit in these meetings and be like, I'm writing it. Isn't it your job to sell and promote it? You know, like, obviously I'm going to do my bit. I'm going to be really proud that I've written a book. Obviously I'm going to shout it from the rooftops, but I don't think that responsibility should be solely on the author. Like if that's the case, what's the point of a publishing house? You know, it just was, intensely frustrating and i got off the phone to my publisher and i did i remember i did have an angry cry for about two and a half minutes like just just the exhaustion of it i guess you know just yeah. kind of going through all of that and then to be told like well i think we've come to the end of the road that's all we can do with it meanwhile i have a proposal of like it's like twenty thousand some words you know that took me a couple of years to craft and to just the notion of like, yeah, well, just chuck that in the bin now. Cause I thought no fucking way, mate, I've put way too much into it. Mm. Um, so hence that post, um, which the irony being that at the time that had the most engagement out of any post I've ever done. <laughs> so, you know, when you're like, okay, well, there you go. Publishers interesting. And everybody in there saying, write it, I will buy it. You know, the comments is, is uh, if I recall, right. Is a lot of people saying that. Yeah. And so, and I was dead serious when I wrote that. I'm like, fuck it. I'll learn how to self-publish and I'll get it out there somehow. Yeah. And yeah, the irony of that being somebody on Twitter, somebody who follows me on Twitter saw that post mm. and messaged me and said, oh, you should talk to this fella and tagged him in the thing. And um, so I messaged him and it turns out that he was uh, kind of pretty high up at Unbound, this, this publisher. And so I messaged him and said, listen, here's, here's my situation. I said, do you mind if I email you? I've got a bit of a tale to tell. <laughs> so he, and he said, fine, gave me his email address. So I messaged him and I said, here's the deal. Here's what's happened. But I think I've got something really good here. And would you mind if I send it to you? And I just, I'd appreciate any notes. Like if I'm, if I'm nuts, tell me I'm nuts and it's not going to work. But, you know, I just would appreciate your input on this. And he said, yeah, sure. Send it to me. And I think I sent it. That was on that conversation was on a Friday. I think that email exchange was on a Friday and I sent it to him on a Sunday thinking it will be the first thing he sees on Monday morning when he's back in the office. He got back to me on the Sunday and wow. he said, oh yeah, I've read it. And uh, yeah, you've got something here. Let's have a call. And um, he said, we're, yeah, I think we're going to publish it. Unbound. And I was like, what so i got further in 72 hours after doing one post on social media than i'd got in like two years of trying to get this round through traditional publishing which if that isn't the biggest of all ironies i don't know what it is you know the whole thing being i didn't get published through a traditional publisher because i don't have enough of a social media following meanwhile i post about it on social media within 72 hours i got a book deal yeah okay cool um so yeah i I remember writing that post and just being full of frustration, but also like a bit of a like, well, screw it. I'm just going to do it anyway, you know? Um, and that exactly what I said, you know, that, that the easy road is not in my DNA. You know, I experienced that all the way through my life, you know, trying to work at magazines, getting rejections at every turn. Like this is not unfamiliar territory to me. Okay. So I have to take a back road to get there. All right, cool. 
I know those roots. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. I just, it kind of felt like, yeah, of course, of course, this is the way that I'm going to do it. But, you know, very lucky that Unbound saw something in me and took a chance with it. And, and I got the book published. So I'm just, I'm really grateful, actually, that it turned out that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it, the irony laced throughout of it is just, I mean, it's, it's comical now. Obviously, it's funny now, but yeah, during I can imagine the frustration. But self-published, it was it was fantastic. But it was this idea of this part of the story is also the bit where it's it's anybody that has a penchant for loving the un, like the underdog for lack of a better term. But the idea of you winning, what ended up happening when you said right it's an investment people that I'm going self-published, but it was this idea of that it was almost like a crowdfunding mentality, right? With publishing the book. Mm -hmm. Can you please share what happened in that short period of time of going, Hey guys, look, you can pledge a certain amount and this is kind of what's going to fund the publication of the book. And then what ended up happening? Cause for me, I was like, looking back, I was like, this is fucking awesome after going through that process of, you know, going through the ringer of that process. And then, yeah, once again, you being like, yeah, I'll just figure out another way being, you know, it says everything about you being adaptable, you know, versatile, being resilient, all these different beautiful and like endearing traits, which make you the fantastic woman that you are. But yeah, can you share the story of, the day that you go right it's going to be crowdfunded by people and then what ensued afterwards right so just to to explain a little bit yeah. about unbound's model yeah. is essentially that they uh, you have to crowdfund the cost of the production of your book mm. and then unbound handle the rest of it so they have in-house designers editors etc so they're a traditional publisher but you kind of crowdfund the cost of your book so in the process leading up to it, after you've obviously um, submitted your proposal, et cetera, et cetera, they go through a phase of essentially just figuring out how much it's going to cost to produce your book. So, uh, and that's when you realize how expensive it is to produce <laughs> a book. Um, so I was like, just, you know, everything black and white, print it on tissue paper if you need. You know, I was just like, <laughs> let's just make it as cheap as possible. Um, and so even that, and I mean, anybody who's seen my book, it's not a large book yeah. um, and there's not much to it. Uh, the cost of producing that was 12,000 pounds, right? So I, that was then on me, like, okay, this is what you have to crowdfund in order for us to be able to produce it. So that was a bit of a like, okay. Um, but, that, but also I was very grateful that I wasn't doing a large hardback, mm -hmm. uh, full color photography coffee table book <laughs> or something. Cause I was like, can't even imagine how astronomically expensive it is to do that. So I thought, okay, uh, now I'm tasked with raising 12 grand. Here we go. So I don't think you, they don't kind of put what the actual number is that you're trying yeah, to hit. Yeah. That's kind of kept um, behind the scenes. But I thought, right, okay, I've just got to have a good crack. And they, you, Unbound are great in the sense that they do this um, when they take you on as an author. There's a seminar that they do with you where mm. they kind of go over how to go about raising this money. Yeah. And I obviously just thought, oh, I'll just like post the link on Twitter a lot and stuff like that, you know. And they were like, no, email everybody you know. And we literally mean 
everybody you know <laughs> and personalize that email. And they were like, just send like maybe a, a maximum of like five a day because obviously everybody's kind of going to get back to you. So um, I really, t- I thought, okay, that's great advice in terms of emailing everybody you know, but I'm not doing five a day. I'm going hell for leather and just going all out. Every yeah. day. <laughs> so I literally emailed everybody I knew from like who I don't care if I'd had a passing conversation with you seven years ago you're hearing about this crowdfunding (laughs) um and I just I absolutely attacked it like a menace like Mm. just made a I had a spreadsheet of people I was going to contact and I just it had hundreds of people on it and I just methodically every day worked my way through it um I understand what they were saying about uh, only do a maximum of five per day because my inbox, holy shit, was an absolute mess by the end of this. But um, I I was sending probably upwards of 30 emails a day, you know, just individualized, you know, like, oh, hey, I haven't spoken to you in a few years. I've seen you've had a baby. You know, it was just kind of like that. And then like my pitch. Um, So on the day that it launched, I believe within 24 hours, I'd hit 25% of my target. And that, um, you know, Unbound were like, whoa, we don't see this much. Um, And then I'd hit the full 12 grand, just over 12 grand, I think, actually, um, within three weeks. Incredible. So, um, but that was, you know, you have to just be shameless in your self-promotion. You know, I just, like I said, I emailed everybody um messaged everybody i could think of it was all i could think breathe or talk about at the time like mm. anybody who came into contact with me i'm giving you these details and this is how you would contribute to it you know yeah. um and i got to say it's boom cycle that made it happen for me my riders at boom mm. just showed up for me in a way that i cannot to this day even fathom yeah. and they got me over the line um and so that's how it all came together so it's like an amazing story and once again there's the amount of layers of irony of, is funny is that the idea of you were judged on social media following but it was emails and actual real life connection with people not social media followers it's like mm-hmm. yeah i'm a real human being that actually connects with people really and i'm not just a follower count and that's what ends up getting right. your book published um and then I guess there's the realization like, oh, fuck, I've got to go write this book now. How was that? How was exactly that? Tragedy? that. <laughs> exactly that. I had that. I wrote, you know, you got, it's like exhausting to get over the line. You finally raise the money and then you're like, oh shit. Yeah. Okay. I've got to actually do the work. Um, so I was quite lucky in the sense that it's not like I was out here trying to write war and peace. You know yeah. what I mean? It was like the majority of the work, to be honest, was, was done within the book proposal, right? Because in a book proposal, you have to kind of do an outline of what every chapter is going to be, et cetera, et cetera. So it was really just then a case of fleshing it out Mm. uh, in terms of what was already in the book proposal. So um, I think I'd given myself, I think it really only took me a couple of months, to be honest, after that, to just kind of uh, just really buckle down. And, you know, meanwhile, I didn't take a day off work. I just, you know, I was just, on reflection, it would have been nice to be able to go to the Italian mountains and just, you know, (laughs) retreat and write my opus. Um, But again, that's, you know, the easy road is not in my DNA, as they say. So, (laughs) uh, so yeah, I just, I worked every day 
um, and, you know, came home and did just as much writing as I could do in that day. Um, and obviously there were times where I hit a wall and it was frustrating because a lot of people, you know, everybody thought, well, I've pledged for, I've, you know, donated my money for my crowdfunding. Where's my book? Yeah. Right. Um, so, which I get because obviously <laughs> if you're not in the industry and you don't know how this model works, it's an insane model. When you think about it, it's like yeah. you, you invest money in this thing and then, oh, your PS, you're going to get the product two years later. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's just like, it's what terrible business model. Um, but it works somehow. Yeah. And thank goodness I, you know, I'm surrounded by very understanding and patient people, yeah, right. but I did have to obviously entertain a lot of conversations during that time of everybody, all anybody then wanted to talk about was the book. Mm. And it's like, you know, on a day where you haven't been able to, you've just been looking at a blank screen with your <laughs> cursor blinking at you, praying that something's going to come out. Those conversations are pretty difficult to have. Like, how's the book going? Um, I want to scratch my eyes out. That's how it's going. Um, but yeah, eventually we got there. And then it's like you kind of publishing in general is a bit of a like hurry up and wait situation. So you yeah. kind of you finish it. And then obviously I'm not the only book that I'm bound to publishing. So I'm just I'm basically I've finished everything, handed everything in. But then I'm in a queue, really. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Of, um, you know, they're publishing however many other books and they get to you when they get to you. And so it's kind of a, it's a long process then of, you know, the, it goes through multiple edits and and the cover design and, you know, lots of. It, I'm not the most patient person at the best of times. So it was quite challenging for me uh, to, to have to sit and wait. But, you know, that, like you said, that it's crazy to me now to think that post that you mentioned was that in January of 2018. And, you know, we were at my book launch at the end of January, 2020, you know? Yeah. So it was like, by the time I'd submitted, I'd submitted my um, full proposal. I'm pretty sure I did that by like June of 2018. So it was a year and a half, you know, before it came out. Yeah. As as the world itself opens up a bit more, I was wondering what are maybe some either personal or professional kind of hopes, dreams and goals that you're comfortable verbalizing, of course. But as you look forward, what are maybe some hopes and dreams that you're kind of like, looking forward to as we hopefully see the back end of this pandemic and the world opens up a bit more uh i am currently doing some work here um, i was doing some consulting for a studio a spin studio that's mm. going to be opening here and my i think my role is going to be be growing a bit there so i'm really excited about that happening mm. and about things i mean gyms and everything were allowed to be open here and, and obviously with certain restrictions, but yeah. I'm looking forward to those restrictions being lifted and everything kind of just getting back into normal and getting into the swing of that and just being part of a studio culture again and being, um, you know, meeting a new community of people. I'm really excited about that. Um, I would love at some point to uh, be able to just come back to London for a visit mm. um, because obviously I feel a bit like I kind of left under the cover of darkness, you know, it was just, <laughs> I had to, I left like in the midst of the pandemic um, yeah. in May last year. So I've been here almost a year um, and I didn't get to say goodbye to anybody. I didn't get to have a last ride at boom cycle. You know, that, that kind of stuff is tough. And I would really like to be able to go home and, and visit everybody um, there. Um, and just in terms of work and stuff, I think I definitely see my consulting business growing um, mm. bangs consulting, which is, um, you know, working with instructors and studios to to help 
take them from good to great. Yeah. That's a real passion of mine. Uh, I, I really believe in um, spreading the word of movement being about joy yeah. and, uh, and that being the approach to uh, any kind of fitness slash wellness environment. Uh, I think, um, yeah, it's, it's much more powerful when it's done from that kind of place. So uh, I envision that taking off um, in, a, in a big way once things open up. And I would like to be doing work internationally with that for sure. Mm. Um, I'm currently studying um, uh, to become a life coach. I've been doing a, a lot of work in that area. So um, looking forward to doing more of that. Um, and yeah, just more writing and living life, you know? Yeah. I love living it. A nice, happy, peaceful life in nature. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Right, before I ask you the final four questions, bangs. Okay. How can more how can people find you? This is shameless plug time. You're a woman of many talents. So how can people access more of you? So my website, bangsandabond.com, has all of my various projects on it. So at the moment that's consulting, life coaching, and my newsletter. I have a newsletter called The Murmuration. Okay. which is on Substack. So you can go to themurmuration.substack.com. Um, but all of those links are on bangsinabond.com as well. The Murmuration is for women over 35 to have conversations uh, about the deep and meaningful things that matter to us at this stage in our lives. I'm really excited about doing that work and, and building that community. That's been really, I've just launched that a month or so ago and it's been really, really great so far. So yeah, if you happen to be in the Halifax region of Nova Scotia, um, I will be teaching at Rival Studio and that opens in a few weeks. And yeah, I mean, we're, we're doing some online streaming stuff as well with certain classes. So stay tuned to my Instagram for updates about that. My Instagram is bangs in a bun. Basically just type in bangs in a bun anywhere and I'll probably come up. Awesome. <laughs> and I will leave everything that bangs has just spoken about in the show notes so please delving there and you can find yourself more bangs which we all need so please do <laughs> right these are the final four question bangs these are questions i ask all the guests and they're more general life questions so right the first one if i gave you a megaphone that allowed you to share one message with the entire world what would it be Smile at strangers, spread good vibes, be nice to people. Which is what I've got in my book in a pen. And I love it because I was fortunate. Yeah, I say be... that at the end of all my classes and it's something I really try to live by. I love it. Question number two. What's a personal struggle that you deal with that many people may not know about? I would say currently, just I guess following on from your last question, actually, uh, about moving, etc. At the moment, it's probably just, um, obviously, I've moved under really strange circumstances. And as I was saying, it's very difficult to start over at this point in your life. I think it's just like meeting people and making new connections and stuff. It's really difficult to do this under pandemic circumstances, for sure. Um, and, it, you know, I guess the isolation of that has has been tough and a bit of an adjustment so and as an introvert obviously I'm constantly battling with like I want people in my life no stay away from me <laughs> um you know so I think that's probably my biggest personal struggle at the moment is like okay I'm now 40 years old and I'm having to just start over how do I build community and connection and friendship here now for myself 
and, and I, I'm sure it will come in time as with everything. It just, you know, it's time and patience and grace in all things. Um, but yeah, I'd say that's probably my biggest struggle at the moment is, is reckoning with that. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. But I do bet on you because you're great. So I do bet on you to Aww. work that all out. But um, thanks, friend. No problem. No problem. Question number three is what are three personality traits slash characteristics that you would say you've built your life upon up to this point? I would say honesty. Mm-hmm. Authenticity is a big one for me. And uh, marching to the beat of my own drum. I like it. You know, I've kind of, I'm not one for following the crowd. I can't really be peer pressured into anything. Even if I fuck it up, I need to just do things the way I'm going to do them. You yeah. know, I'd, I'd much rather do that than be following what other people tell me and it not be sitting right with me in my soul. So, yeah, I'm very big on just marching to the beat of your own drum and doing things the way you need to do them. I love it. I love it. Final question. This is this is my favorite question to ask people. And, yeah, I can't wait to hear your answer. So many, few, many years into the future, your time as Bangs, Carrie Campbell, is coming to an end and the person closest to you can only describe you and your time here on earth in one sentence what would you hope that would be firstly that's a great question oh thank you i would hope that they would say she lived boldly and she lived her truth and she made people feel good i love it that's absolutely awesome Mm. I, I love. hope that's what I um what I bring to people. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Bangs, this has been fantastic. I just enjoy talking to you. So l- the mics and the podcast are like a happy accident as it were. Um so I'm more uh, that is one thing I'm just grateful for above all else. Um yeah, thank you so much for your time and yeah, I'm just really grateful. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for asking me to do it. It's been a great conversation. I've really really enjoyed it. Thank you. No problem. Everyone, goodbye.